Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark LaLiberty, and joining me today is... Oh my gosh, I don't know. <laughs> we lost him. Corey, not very random enough knock rainer? Sounds about right to me. Here we go. On today's episode, we'll be talking about random number generators, hacking new internet protocols, and exchange server vulnerabilities, courtesy of different talks at the DEF CON 29 hacking conference. Uh, for just for time's sake, crap, let's go ahead and uh, go on in. Man, that's boring. YouTube on in, in this case. YouTube on in, because YouTube is definitely a verb. <laughs> it is now, like Google. I Googled it. I YouTube it. I guess so. Whatever. I, I, I Googled it, and I YouTube that video about DEF CON. Huzzah. So just this last week, or I guess two weeks ago now, as you're listening to this uh, in the future, was <laughs> one of mine and Corey's as well, I believe, favorite tech conferences of the year. Uh, so every summer in the, the middle, I guess, early August, uh, most cybersecurity folks make their trip to Las Vegas, in the middle of the desert, which August is, I mean, that's not, I guess they do it because the cheap Pretty rates. grueling time. <laughs> <laughs> The good old 110, 115 degree days there. Uh, make their way to Vegas to attend DEF CON and I guess right before at the more business-oriented Black Hat Security Conference. Yeah. Uh, we like both, but we always talk about DEF CON as being the hack for people that can't afford both. Uh, Black Hat being business conference also means it has business rates to attend the briefings, let alone the trainings. Whereas DEF CON, I think, is it 300 now or was it 200? It's, it's it pretty cheap 300. DEF CON. Yep. Defcon's three hundred bucks. Normally, cash at the door. Things are a little bit different this year, um, but definitely the more I don't know, hands-on, yeah, yeah. grassroots. Conference. It's more fun because it's where everyone lets their hair down. But it's also really the same talks and the same speakers with some new stuff. So you can kind of get a lot of black hat for free and get the fun versions of the talks. Yeah, and speaking of free, so this year's conference because it was hybrid, uh, just like last conference was digital only. All of the talks are available for free on DEF CON's YouTube channel and on their media server, which is media.defcon.org. Um, highly recommend. Just, this was 29 or 21? I think 29. So when you go to media.defcon.org, you'll have lots of folders to look through, but 29 is this year. Yeah. And speaking of which, definitely check through previous year's talks as well. Like there's plenty of in-depth discussions that still hold up if you're looking for just interesting uh, tests against technologies, interesting talks on still applicable vulnerabilities. Um, highly recommend it. So this year's, it was a hybrid conference. They did allow folks in person. Uh, we as a team chose to stay behind and attend it digitally. Um, but we still managed to uh, make a few different chats about a few different topics. And I mean, I don't want to speak for Corey, but I felt like there were still some really interesting talks that uh, I at least attended and was able to watch over the the nice weekend. Um, yeah, it's I, I wouldn't say the the quality of the research is still the same. So yeah. I, I, I got to say, I can't say this is my favorite talk as a, a business executive. The one side effect to when I'm not in person, I don't get to kind of take off my day job to, to see it. I've I've not seen as many talks as I normally do when I'm there. But for the ones I did see, I mean, there, there's still lots of interesting disclosure and, and new research. 
Yeah. So I guess like let's chat about a couple that we saw and I'll start with one of mine that I really liked. Um, so the title was uh, HTTP slash two. The sequel is always worse. Um, and it was a talk given by James Kettle, who is the director of research at Portswigger, uh, the company that makes Burp Suite, among other tools as well. Uh, really intelligent. And uh, I mean, so I guess we'll preface this with a lot of these tech focused talks at like DEF CON or Black Hat feels like it's like a coin flip of if you're going to get someone that is highly technical, but not so great at actually explaining their topic or someone that is also highly technical because they're speaking of this, but still like, you know, really good at getting their points across. And this was definitely one of the better ones. I know Corey, you and I have attended plenty of talks at Black Hat or RSA where it's like, it is almost painful to try and follow exactly what they're trying to explain as they go super in depth about how exactly they triggered this buffer overflow while I don't know. I, I have that problem. Yeah, sometimes. Com- communication is hard. I, I would say all of the talks have really smart, technical, detailed information because the researchers themselves are smart. But it's a special art to make a talk not only technically interesting, but un- understandable and fun to a large majority while still being technical. And then one of the things I really love about the diversity is we're starting, you know, InfoSec is a global community with lots of researchers around the world. Uh, But obviously at an English speaking conference, sometimes while I love the fact that a lot of these uh, global folks speak English better than I can speak any other language, it is sometimes uh, communication is a little hard. So sometimes there's really awesome talks, but you still have to kind of pay attention to to listen because of communication issues. So anyways, this talk was fantastic. Um, So it was about HTTP2, which I mean, I feel like we're going to have to dedicate an entire podcast episode to sometime in the near future to chat about. It's basically the upgrade to the traditional HTTP application level protocol that we've been using for the last several decades. Um, And so his talk was on vulnerabilities specifically in servers that have enabled support for HTTP2 while maintaining HTTP1 on communications to the backend server. So a bit of explanation on this one, I guess. Um, A lot of the the websites and web apps and things that you use out on the internet, uh, they're actually kind of split in half where they'll have this front end portal where that's where your web browser actually connects to, log in, and that's where you're making all your requests to. But then that web server connects to a backend server, uh, usually through like an API or just through an HTTP connection to kind of load up the rest of the content, gather resources from other locations, uh, what have you. And traditionally, both of these front end and back end servers would use the same protocol, HTTP 1.1, I believe is the most recent one that isn't too, um, where like if you submit a get request to watchguard.com, uh, watchguard.com would then submit its own get request to like the resource server on the back end to pull whatever content it needed. And it just works because it's basically mirroring the request from the front end to the back end, gets the response, and sends it right back to the front end. And HTTP 2 kind of throws a wrench into that. So traditional HTTP, the older style, is all text-based. So parsers, as they're taking, as they're parsing it, basically, uh, they go through it line by line. They look for things like new line characters to signify the end of like a header and the start of the next header line, or the end of all the headers and the start of the body. But in comparison, HTTP2 is binary. So it takes place over streams, uh, specifically to support multiplexing. It's kind of like TCP, where if you open up a TCP packet in Wireshark, it's not just like a text file that says, 
header one equals blah, blah, blah. Header two equals blah, blah, blah. It's a predefined set of binary locations where it knows, okay, this is where the start of the header section should be. And so it's got a binary uh, signature for here's how long the header is. Okay, here's what the name is. Here's the value. End of header. Here's the next one. So on. So it's all binary. If you ever open up an HTTP2 packet in something like Wireshark or another protocol, again, unlike normal HTTP where you're literally just reading effectively a text file that was sent over a TCP connection, uh, you're instead parsing the binary for this automatically. Um, so some of the th ways that HTTP2 differs from HTTP 1.1. Uh, with HTTP 1.1, if you make a connection to a server, first thing it does is it opens up a TCP connection. Then it potentially negotiates a TLS connection. Uh, then it sends a request, and that request may be chunked over multiple frames. Maybe you're uploading an image, and it takes a couple packets to actually upload that image. Uh, then you receive that response, which again may be chunked over multiple frames. Maybe you're loading a website that's pretty content heavy, and it takes a few packets to get to you. Now, one of the limitations of HTTP 1.1, though, is that only one response can be delivered at a time over a connection. It's called response queuing. So if a client wants to make multiple parallel requests to a server, it needs to open multiple TCP connections. And what I mean by that is, it's like if I make a connection to watchguard.com, I'm going to get index.html or whatever, like the actual page itself. But then it also might have images on there. So like the banner image and whatever. And if all those are hosted on the same server, like I might want to load all those through the same connection instead of having to open eight, nine, 50 different connections to that server to re retrieve each individual component in parallel. Uh, it is like, yes, the internet is fast, but there's still a non-negligible amount of latency as you have to open up new connections to retrieve new resources for a web connection. So HTTP2, on the other hand, uses a concept of streams where one TCP connection can have multiple streams. And a request and response messages can all be broken up into independent frames, sent all together, jumbled up, doesn't matter, and then they're just reassembled on the other end. So you can kind of interleave these multiple requests and responses in parallel without breaking any one, basically. Pretty dang interesting technology. Like, I mean, I'm sure, Corey, you've opened a packet capture to something like Google before recently, and you've probably seen things like Quick Protocol or HTTP2. And like, I personally didn't, fully like i don't know i don't want to, i guess yeah i didn't fully understand it because i'd never given it a chance to like kind of wrap my head around it didn't matter to me yet but it is kind of the future of web traffic is moving towards http2 it's more efficient yep, and it yep. reduces latency that's kind of like the super thousand foot level of how these two differ the talk was on what happens if i'm a web service like web app provider and i say oh you know i want to support the future i'm going to enable http2 on my front end server uh, while not making any changes to that communication to the backend server. This can cause issues because HTTP 1 responses are queued. The systems will look for headers, for example, to see where one ends and where the next one begins. And so if the front end and the back end disagree on where each message ends uh, because they're handled differently, because they are two entirely separate protocols, an attacker could basically send an ambiguous message that gets interpreted as two distinct HTTP requests by the backend, which then gives the attacker the ability to prepend arbitrary content at the start of the next legitimate user's request. Like there's a few different terminologies thrown around for this. Uh, socket poisoning is potentially one of them. Um, there are a few other names given to these style of attacks too. 
So he gave an example that I thought was interesting, and I actually kind of remember the fallout of this one happening. Uh, so he was investigating a potential issue with Atlassian, uh, the company that makes Jira and Confluence that we use, really popular for a bunch of other developers and companies as well. Um, and he found that if you was sent a spoofed or an HTTP2 request with a spoofed content length uh, that's smaller than it actually was, and two post requests inside of it. So basically queuing these requests inside one HTTP2 request, but then saying the content length is smaller. Uh, it would cause the system to get out of sync before sending things like, for example, SAML authentication responses, which meant that by sending one single message with a smaller content length than it actually was, two HTTP2 requests inside, the backend server would process the first response and then it would see the second response, assume it was the next one, and process it, but tack it on to whatever the next Atlassian customer's request was to the server. And basically the fallout of this was users started being authenticated to other random users. So basically if I logged in uh, through like a SAML authentication, uh, I would successfully authenticate, but I could be associated with Corey's account if he had logged in right after me because his would get tacked onto mine. And Atlassian basically had to go log off every single user and reset their system in order to clean up this mess caused by this vulnerability. Uh, I thought that was super interesting where basically just by playing over the fact that you can pass two requests in HTTP2 and it would ha handle differently by a different protocol on the back end could cause such a mess like that. I also showed uh, like injecting JavaScript cross-site scripting uh, using similar style things of, you know, reducing the content length, the advertised content length, or just playing off how the backend server handles these multi-requests, HTTP2 requests. Um, he could trick clients into redirecting them to a server under his control as part of the response. Again, just poisoning basically that backend server uh, because it was handling HTTP2 requests. And really, like, the long story takeaway from this was don't mix these two protocols unless you're certain of your parsing and handling on the web apps. It's not as simple as saying, I want to support the future and enable HTTP2 because uh, you are potentially going to cause a whole mess of problems. He ended up making, like, $60,000 in bug bounties from some pretty big companies just by these honestly pretty simple, uh, once you knew to look for them, pretty trivial to find flaws in a lot of them. So that one was super interesting. I learned a lot about HTTP2. I'd recommend you check out the talk. He did a great job of just explaining it from top to bottom. And if you look at the PowerPoint and the actual speaker, um, I don't know, the listing on it on the DEF CON website, there's a lot of resources to learn about these styles of attacks too. Um, so I thought that was cool. Uh, Corey, how about you? Anything you found interesting? Yeah, as I said, unfortunately not attending in person means I didn't go to as many talks as I normally do. When you have the benefit of all, all of them sitting there ready for you, you can kind of delay them. But I've, I've seen a few. And I guess the one I'll talk about is kind of uh, one of the first ones I watched since I, I think I mentioned it last week when I mentioned what we thought might be look interesting. And it was a talk by Orange Sai, uh, who... I believe is a security, a principal security researcher at a company called DevCore. I believe it's a China-based, I'm not sure, but a China-based uh, group. And his talk was proxy login, just the tip of the iceberg. New attack surface on the exchange server. 
So I went to it because of the, you know, obviously the topic of proxy login. If, if you're curious about, I'm sure you've heard of proxy login, the, the four different exchange vulnerabilities, most of them zero day, when a nation state uh, attacker group called Hafnium was exploiting them to really gain eventually full, you know, system level RCE, remote code execution on exchange servers. Arguably one of the biggest exchange vulnerabilities in a long time or group of vulnerabilities that you ch chain together. So obviously that that kind of connection to proxy login and the idea that there's, you know, that's just the tip of the iceberg was interesting to me. Uh, High-level overview of the, t the attack was really what Orange Sai was talking about is how exchange architecture has changed quite a bit over the past decade. Every time they have new releases, there's a lot of architectural changes uh, to support all kinds of new things, probably including some of the cloud capabilities. Uh, but the the way OWA, you know, Outlook Web Access works, different APIs and different Windows remote login works, all that backend and front-end architecture has changed. And they, the, the point of his talk was there is a lot of attack surface there and a lot of opportunity to find new bugs. Some of those were obvious because they were found for proxy login, but I think there's other attack chains that he mentioned like proxy Oracle, which is a plain text password recovery attack chain. Again, kind of based on the same backend frontend surface in exchange. There's something called proxy shell, which they, uh, this particular group uh, and Orange Sai himself kind of won a pwn to own conference in April, 2021 on this pre-authentication remote code execution chain where they put a, a, you know, a system shell running on an exchange server. So in the talk, they talk about those different proxy attack, you know, all proxy named attack chains, uh, why, how they found the attack surface for them and, and really gave you an outline of the exchange server. Uh, overall, they had discovered eight vulnerabilities that are all now patched. So the big takeaway is if you've updated exchange, these are now patched. But really the point of the talk was to show other researchers uh, this new architecture and some aspects of it that might be good to look at for the security community as far as new attack surface. That's interesting. So one of the things, yeah, one of the things I liked about the attack is, you know, like Mark said, if you go to media.defcon.org, besides going to what I think they call slides and video where you can watch these presentations or just on YouTube, you can actually go to the the PowerPoint or the presentation section and download these these actual presentations. And in one of his slides, he kind of showed the Exchange architecture. And similar to what you just said, Exchange is a, is a very similar web application that has both a front end and a back end server. And, you know, uh, both of them use HTTP for, for their communication. You know, the front end is on port 80 and port 443. I, the back end is on uh, port 81 and port 444. Uh, I believe the back end server is even uh, often directly accessible if people expose it to the internet. So there's cases where if you know what you're doing, you can actually directly access the back end using, you know, specially crafted web connections. But they also showed some of the different like exchange specific services that have developed over time. Uh, one of the services he, he pointed out quite a bit, I think was called the client access service, 
which is a kind of the the protocol handler for everything between the front end and the back end. It's essentially something that does a proxy, uh, and it, it kind of proxies the the queries and the stuff happening from the front end and back end. And for the security nerds in the the crowd, proxies are great, but they also if you're proxying and parsing stuff, it also could offer attack surface for people messing with the proxy and, and finding ways to confuse the back end and front end. So at a very high level, without going into all the detail, I did find the in-depth description of all the different services running on the Exchange server and, and how the front end and the back end talk, including things like that cast stuff, which only really started showing up in, in the 2013-2016 timeframe. So what I'm getting at, actually, I think the cast service didn't really show up until Exchange 2016 and 2019. But to your point of new protocols and new programs come out, and we're so used to the, like, we know HTTP 1.1, but until you actually do the study to learn HTTP 2.0, you don't learn of the new potential things that have been added that could also be a, a risk. In the same way, I think a lot of administrators are used to Exchange 2013 and all the capabilities there, but may not have looked at how Exchange Server 2016 and 2019 have changed architecturally behind the scenes and how those changes kind of add some more attack surface. So I think one of his part of his talk was really to point out things like that cast service, which which have a you know a lot of potential for vulnerabilities. Yeah, I'd definitely check out that slide deck. I just pulled it up while you were chatting, and this is honestly fascinating at how well they pulled together exactly how these front end services and back end services work together. Like it's kind of like what we went through in the report showing our recent report showing how you can abuse some of this. But but in more detail, yeah. like in our report, if you read Mark's section in the last internet security report, I believe that was Q1, uh, the report for Q1, where we talk about proxy logging, you show some pretty specific before and after URI requests. Uh, he doesn't only go into detail on the ones for proxy login, but he really goes into detail on a lot of things. And then throughout the rest of the presentation, they kind of show chains of vulnerabilities. I don't want to go in all of them, but but little web-based things, very similar to, you know, some of them you might have showed that were associated, were, were single vulnerabilities that you could chain together for proxy login, but ways to clone user identities using some of this this you know, cast some of the problems found in this. Ways to attach author uh, authorization editors. Basically, lots of ways to get past the pre-auth exchange requires before you get to the back end to do other stuff. And then later on, then they start, you know, he goes over the auth flow in different ways CAS does it. But then he shows a lot of other vulnerabilities for the back end, like a, a, a super, ser super server-side request forgery, lots of other things. It's really hard to go into technical detail for all of these on a podcast because you know you have to talk about little things in the URI and how it parses. But if you watch this presentation, you'll, you'll get a lot of cool information about how these work in a lot of details. Uh, Oracle, uh, a padding issue. Uh, and, and ultimately at the end, he shows ways to exploit this ultimately in, in one final demo where they chain a lot of these together. Uh, end up getting a PowerShell 
by the way, one of the parts of Exchange is something called Exchange PowerShell Remoting. Exchange now uses PowerShell and has a remote way to access it to automate a lot of Exchange tasks, similar to and based on WinRM, which is Windows Remote Management, another API that you can accidentally expose on servers that, that allows for PowerShell. So I uh, don't really want to go into every technical detail for because this was the type of web-based flaws that you have to chain a bunch together. But if you want to really learn how the latest Exchange architecture is and how, how that proxy, that client access service, has a lot of vulnerabilities that can ultimately lead to issues where you know, pre-authentication pre person can get access to the back end and, and install a shell on your, your, your Exchange server, it was a very interesting talk. Uh, I would say from a newness situation, it was more than just proxy login. He talked about some other, as I mentioned, proxy Oracle and another, other vulnerabilities. But these are all patched things now. So there wasn't any sort of like new current vulnerability. But I think what he's trying to show you is all the attack surface that CAS kind of offers, which will certainly allow other researchers to found, find other issues. As far as mitigation, you know, it's... Pretty simple because a lot of these are vulnerabilities in the way Exchange does something. So he certainly says, uh, you know, make sure you've patched Exchange for the CAS front end. They released a patch in April 2021 that mitigated a lot of the uh, pre-auth part of this attack. Uh, he even kind of jokingly mentions that you can move to fully cloud-based Exchange. Uh, a lot of this has to do with uh, you managing your own Exchange server. Uh, of course, you can move to Exchange Online where you don't have to worry about, you know, hardening and exposing things you shouldn't. Problem on solved. On the flip side, yeah. Although he did put just kidding because I, I think like many experts, he realizes Microsoft can make mistakes too and there's probably vulnerabilities in the cloud. And then, then the final thing too is, of course... One of the big reasons you want to learn this, this architecture is to have strong access control lists or firewalling policies because, like, uh, obviously that backend on port 81 and 443 should never be on the internet. Really, most of the web parts of your exchange, your exchange server obviously needs port 25 to, to get mail from other servers, but there's really no reason you should expose its web interfaces to the internet, I guess, unless you really want Outlook web access to work. Uh, you might have to do that, but even then, you can you can limit the access in ways to not give direct access, anyways, to the back end. So, very interesting talk. I don't think there's new vulnerabilities, but I I think just to learn the the modern Exchange architecture, which a lot of people may may not realize, all these little back end services Exchange uses. Uh, is, is a good thing to know, especially since uh, these researchers think there's so much attack service specifically in that client access service. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, last one I went to uh, that I wanted to chat about was one of my own personal... Um, uh, man, my brain is not working right now. One of my favorite topics when it comes to security research. Right now? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sorry, and that I is. do it. It, they, it was fo a focus on IoT and specifically cryptographic RNGs, so random number generators for IoT. Uh, the title was pretty great. It was called You're Doing IoT RNG. So kind of a play on You're Doing It Wrong. That was by Dan Petro and Alan Cecil, who are both security consultants at a company called Bishop Fox, which I would think does penetration testing engagements. 
And so their whole talk was basically about some issues with hardware random number generators um, focusing on IoT. Like hardware number generators have many issues just in general. Um, basically, uh, but like one of the biggest issues comes with IoT where a lot of these devices are just C or C++ flash to bare metal effectively. Like you get a system on a chip, that system on a chip has a lot of modules inside of it, including potentially a hardware RNG module, and then you flash it and then sell it or deploy it or whatever. And they typically have like a function where you'll, for example, pass a pointer to a variable. So I guess this gets a little intensive on uh, C programming, but basically in the world of in the world of C programming, like low level programming, uh, I guess not necessarily low, but a little higher than assembly. Uh, you'll define variables and then pass the memory location of that variable to different functions. And those functions will then compute some value and save it to that memory location you pass. And so, for example, with a hardware number generator, like the operating system might expose some like hardware get random number function um, where you'll pass in a memory location to a, a variable that you want to store the memory, the store the random number at. Uh, and then the actual return value, though, for that function is like some sort of error code where if it returns negative one, that means there was an issue. If it returns like one or whatever, that means it was fine, for example. So in other programming languages, typically your return value will be the actual number you're trying to get kind of thing. And then potentially like null for an issue. I don't know. Uh, but uh, one of the issues they found was that a lot of folks that are designing these IoT operating systems and applications, they don't check that return error code to see if it actually errored out. And what happens with that then is you get a lot of undetermined behavior where you don't know exactly how random or how much entropy there is in this random value that you generated. Um, so, for example, they found one example through some engagements in their IoT penetration testing where when they let, went to look at like the random numbers that were generated to create a RSA key, like a 2048-bit key, where in order to fill out that key space, you have to generate a lot of random numbers if you're only doing it 8 bits at a time, for example. And they found that as part of this key's random numbers, there are just these large swaths of just zeros in the return data because yeah. uh, it turns out that a lot of these hardware random number generators, you can actually exhaust them. You can starve them of random numbers if you call them too quickly. They will run out of entropy and just start returning zeros. And if you're not checking for errors, then uh, you're potentially just effectively getting a bunch of zeros then, which obviously reduces the... It's not random. <laughs> yeah, not random at all. Um, so, but then like they point out, okay, so what could be worse than just getting all zeros for your random number? Um, and this is where uh, Dan Petro introduced Petro's law. She says if he ever gets a law named after him, he wants it to be this one. And it's that it can always get worse. <laughs> so what is worse than just returning all zeros for uh, a random number? Well, so he explained one scenario he found across a lot of IoT devices where uh, looking at just like the pseudocode in this case, it starts by initializing or declaring a variable but not instantiating it on the stack so you declare for example a, a an unsigned 32-bit integer called random number um, then you pass that as a pointer to a random number function function so you call like get random number pass in the pointer to your variable you don't check to see if the function succeeded 
and then you just send that random number over a network. So an example of this might be in a Diffie-Hellman key exchange where both sides have to generate a random number and then send it over the network to the other side. So if I'm a client, I connect to a server, that server is gonna, as part of the key exchange, run through this random number generator and then send back the number that it had. So the issue they found was if you declare that variable and don't instantiate it, you don't initialize the memory for it, that variable just has whatever was in that memory location at that last point in time as its value. And so if it doesn't get overwritten, like if that random number function doesn't perturb the variable in there when it fails, it will just send whatever value happened to be in that memory location. And so as a client, you could open a bunch of connections, do a bunch of Diffie-Hellman key exchanges, and basically read off the entirety of the memory of this device just back over the network. Now, this is very similar to the, like the Heartbleed vulnerability and at least the result of it, of just reading arbitrary, or not necessarily arbitrary, random memory off the device. But with enough requests, you can build a pretty big picture of what's going on there. Like For example, like the type of code that handles these connections are typically very close to codes that handle cryptographic keys for uh, HTTPS connections. So maybe you can read off the memory location over time that had the private key for that web server. Things like that. Which is what what, what happened in Heartbleed too, right? I mean, you know, the idea is eventually you could get to a private key. You wouldn't have control of what bits of information disclosure you're getting each time, but like you said, with enough interaction, you'd eventually get a good memory map that could have sensitive info. Exactly. So yeah, there is something worse than just all zeros for a random number when you're trying to use yeah. it for encryption. It's just random memory locations off the device and whatever the context All is. zeros isn't random. So if I know that's the C that uses for randomness, there might be a way I can back into the, if it's using the randomness to help make a secret, I might be able to back into the secret by knowing the random seed. But it's even better just to pull the secret right off memory. <laughs> yes, exactly. That is worse. <laughs> um, so for example, like you went on to, it was the pair of them. They went on to describe like basically IoT devices are pretty prone to like these low entropy states, especially with things like generating a, a, a cryptographic key, like an RSA key, where you have to do a ton of uh, random number generation. Um, and then they pointed out that just in general, it's really difficult to handle an error in random number generation. So even if you were checking to see, okay, did this random number generator fail in some way? Like, what exactly do you do with that? You have two options, really. You can either spin loop, so use 100% of CPU in the time indefinitely and just keep trying this function that potentially could just keep on failing, which would effectively lock up the device and render it unusable. Or if you detect an error, you can quit out basically kill the entire process and again effectively render the device unusable for this like there's no good answer to this and that's why a lot of developers uh, choose option three which is yolo basically we hope we get a random number if we don't nothing we can do about that at least it works even if it is not cryptographically secure so they talked about like okay what's the right way to do this well first off don't just use a hardware random number generator uh, use something like a, it's called a CSPRNG, so a cryptographically secure pseudo-random number generator. Basically, these are software implementations of ram random number generators, not hardware implementations. Uh, and they may use a hardware random number generator as a source of entropy, that, but that is one of multiple sources of entropy. And by using a software random number generator, first off, it never blocks execution, so if it fails, 
Like you can still continue with your program. Uh, the API net calls never fail. It has pools of many entropy sources and it will always return a crypto quality result. And this is how like every major operating system works. Windows, Linux, Mac OS, all of them for the random number generators use this CSPRNG software functions as opposed to hardware. Um, and then, but still they could have multiple entropy sources. So they mentioned it could be hardware, could be interrupt timings from different devices on the CPU, could be network traffic. So receive times down to the nanosecond. All these are different entropy sources that are all then zored together so that even if one of them is just straight up all zeros, you still have other ones in there that you would have to predict and crack in order to get in. Um, so I thought that was interesting. They talked about a few other things like uh, using a hardware random number generator to seed something like glibc's rand function, which is not secure. They de demoed a tool called untwister, where basically uh, if someone did this as a method and you got a couple of encrypted messages or a couple of random numbers, you could find uh, that seed, the original seed, and then basically predict every random number that would be generated on this device past, future, future and present. Um, and then they talked about just the main issues of generating large keys with low entropy. So I thought it was a really interesting talk. Like it's a different take on IoT security. We talk a lot about, you know, weak passwords and hard-coded telnet access to these devices that then get exposed to the internet. But a lot of people don't think about the actual like hardware it's running on and the applications and operating systems developed for them might not be and probably aren't as cryptographically secure as a traditional operating system is. Um, their takeaway was if you're going to make an IoT device, don't try and roll your own encryption. Don't try and even roll your own random number generation. Like go with an established IoT operating system to start with and then build your application off of there because you have a greater chance of at least doing this successfully and not ending up with a bunch of zeros as your random entropy or worse, the random memory contents across your entire IoT device. So overall, I thought that was a pretty cool talk. Pretty in-depth again. Again, I'd recommend checking Sounds it out. Sounds pretty cool. It reminds me of a book that I've been quietly with my stupid mechanical <laughs> keyboard trying to Google in the background while you were talking and not click, bother click, listeners. Click, click, click. Sorry, what? The name, the name. I think I remember it. it anyway, so long. I, I think it was called "Signal in the Noise" by Michael Zalewinski, but uh, it was a really deep infosec book all about pseudo random number generation, random number generation, and why hardware random number generation is so important. And to really, I mean, everything cryptography does requires a random number. I, I, I'm probably being over hyperbolic at this point, but cryptography requires random numbers for a lot of things. For it absolutely seeds. does, yes. And I, and I didn't realize, like, pseudo random number generation computers can only fake randomness even the hardware based ones can kind of only fake randomness but at least when you add little hardware tidbits to the seeding the randomness it makes it better but this was one of those books that you you know for me anyways to really understand it at a deep level the amount of mass required is pretty high uh, but it was a fascinating book because you realize how important just a random number is to almost everything we do security and why just using the wrong random number 
generator can really affect things. So reminds me of that book, if I can find the real name of it, because for some reason the name I think it is isn't showing up in Google. Uh, we'll add it to the show notes, but uh, I, I definitely sounds like a cool talk. And, and that book really did introduce to me how important random numbers were. And how difficult it is. Like we design computers to be deterministic. Like we give it an input, yeah. we expect an output. And so for it to just say, oh, here's a random thing. It's difficult. That's why yeah. you do have to like use combinations of different sources, like literally reading off electricity off of a network connection or yes. reading off interrupts from different applications as they uh take over processing on your CPU. When you people that have ever used PGP or anything to generate their own keys, the really smart software even does things like, hey, I want you to take your cursor and just move your mouse all over the place for one minute before we generate this for you. And all that's doing is trying to add some real randomness as seeding data for the computer's inability to ever be perfectly random. So yeah, as you said, hardware is looking at little bits, you know, little things that they can see on the hardware to try to add a random factor. But I bet that's where you get into all kinds of crazy side channels. What if I could put a thermal camera on my computer and while it was generating a random number using a, a hardware random number generator, if it, this happened to be the thing it was using to seed randomness, what if I could, through a different channel, get that information? It gets crazy. But anyways, it's it sounds like a fascinating talk, and if I can find the name of that book, it really did open my eyes to the importance of random numbers and security. And one of the amazing things like that I also want to highlight from their talk was they talked about this one system on a chip uh, specifically where um, if you wanted to use its random number generator, uh, you if you hadn't read the manual on it, uh, so the manual on page 1,106 of 1,152 pages gave a warning for the random number generator saying, if you're going to use this, you have to get a random number and then throw out the next 32 results and then get another random number and then throw out the next 32 results. Basically, you could only use one in every 33 results in order to get a real random number off this chip. And if you didn't read to page 1,106 of the spec sheet of this system on a chip, you would have missed that. And I'm willing to bet quite a few developers that use this system on a chip don't read thousands of pages of spec sheets for it. So yep. there's probably quite a few vulnerable devices out there that are technically using not so random numbers. It's, it's crazy how difficult it is to get this done right. <laughs> By the way, for those that listen to that, thank you for saying that. Just in that I finally got the book name. I remembered the alternate spelling of the author, Michael Zalewinski, and I couldn't be further off the, the book title, though I think I said Signal in the Noise, but the book was called Silence on the Wire, A Field Guide to Passive Reconnaissance and Indirect Attacks. And it was the indirect attacks on random number generators that led to lots of really big vulnerabilities. So if you're interested more on the importance of random numbers, check out the book Silence on the Wire. That book is going on my Kindle to read list now. By the way, it looks like it's 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 a book that I read over a decade ago, and it looks like it's actually more expensive than average just because there's less stock of it. I, I don't know if it was always forty bucks, but Amazon shows it as forty bucks. And if you like, I have a copy. I can I can send it to you. <laughs> 
Either way, though, plenty to of good talks. Not, yes. not to all the audience. Not to all sorry. of you. <laughs> Corey, that's called mass piracy, and you'll end up in prison. No, no. I mean, send you the real book, not send you a copy. There you go. You, you can borrow my my physical copy. I actually read that physically, not Hear on that? Kindle. Corey's offering to buy all of you a $40 book. <laughs> uh, either way, though, like there's still plenty of talks I plan on watching over the course of the next week, so I'm sure we'll have something to chat about on the next podcast, too, potentially on it. But if you haven't already, go to DEF CON's YouTube channel or their media server and definitely check out uh, some of the content from this year because, yeah. as always, it was great. Check it out yourself, man. We're just kind of relaying the great research of these guys that we saw, but you can you can watch it all if you have the time on YouTube and on DEF CON's media page. And, man, I hope this pandemic goes away by next year because I really miss yeah. Hacker Summer Camp. I want to miss my I want to see my friends, and, and gosh darn it, our CTF has been getting more and more popular, but now we've missed yep. two years because of the pandemic. Missed in person. So, uh, that said, our CTF, it's still online. Uh, you can no longer qualify for a kind of cut in line badge code for next year, um, but you still can complete it and each of the last three years previous challenges as well. Crimsonthorn.net, check it out. Uh, had a really great following this year. Hop on the Discord server if you need any help on that too. But man, sucks that it's already over. Hopefully next year we get to go in person. I do want to say now that we all got all the practical stuff, the one thing I couldn't let go is the first of your talks was something about the sequels are always worse. That their concept is already off. Aliens, much better than Alien. Mission Impossible Fallout, much better than the first. Thor Ragnarok, much better than Thor. So uh fun title but sequels are sometimes better okay maybe not always better just mad max fury road way better than the original mad max sequels are a majority of the time worse i don't know i could keep going <laughs> how to train your dragon 2 way better Was dawn it? of the planet of know. the apes way better i think so toy story 3 was Definitely better than the Are first. Are you just at logged into your Netflix account right now, reading off movie? Oh, Disney account, reading off Spider movies. Spider Man Two. Recently. Two Towers was way better than the Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, I don't know about that one. Terminator Two versus Terminator One. Come on. Well, now that we've got Corey's summer movie watching list out of the way. <laughs> Let's go ahead and give Empire, time and back. let's just go with the big one. I would take Empire Strikes Back over the first any day. All right, there's something we can agree on. <laughs> hey everyone, thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, uh, feel free to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I am at XORRO underscore. Corey is at Secadept. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week.